Welcome to Schoolhouse Rocks. It's who we are. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Schoolhouse Rocks, a podcast. Uh, we're here today to talk about a very current topic in education, but it's one that has been discussed for decades now, which is learning styles and how they impact learning, instruct, learning instruction in the school environment. Um, and some of the recent dialogue, and I guess it's not all totally recent, uh, but within the last five or six years, that has been a topic, a focus topic for educational circles about how we formulate our learning experience for students. So let me invite my esteemed guests today to introduce themselves and tell you what they do here in our school district. I'm Susan Redwood. I'm the Learning Disabilities Teacher Consultant at Lincoln Roosevelt School. I'm Caitlin Folkers. I am a special education teacher at Lincoln Roosevelt. Hi, I'm Chris Zegar. I'm the assistant principal at Lincoln Roosevelt, friend of the pod. Meaning you may... Yeah, I'm like on every other one. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I think um, Ms. Bellardino might be leading the way, but you're in a close second. So, I, But I appreciate your... Challenge accepted. I, ooh, all right. I appreciate your regular attendance. Uh, you have lots of really great things to say and contribute so many things to our district that it makes it easy to have you back. All right. So the conversation today is surrounding learning styles. Uh, for a long, long time, teachers were under the impression that... Howard Gardner's learning style should really drive how they tailor instruction to individual students. In fact, we used to spend lots of time, I remember doing it myself as a student and as a teacher, giving these inventories that would give us very specific uh, strengths of students. Um, and we were you know, expected to tailor the experience to that specific learning style for that student. Um, and so that philosophy has been really challenged over the last decade or so. And I think that is based on... And, and has probably led to both of those things, the emergence of conversations about neurodiversity, the acceptance of the fact that we all learn in lots of different ways. While we may have strengths, um, there's no singular area that we are strong at. And I, I uh, <laughs> we had a ladybug just land on the table, so it's good luck for this conversation. Um, so, you know, as you define neurodiversity, it's really just the natural diversity in human brains, which leads us all to learn in different ways and, you know, accept information in different ways. And so kind of the example I want to lead with, which is where Howard Gardner referenced his work on this, which was like to suggest that Mozart was only music smart would really deny the fact that he was smart in lots of ways, a genius in his product, um, but smart in lots of ways, not just musically. Okay, yeah. So I... Um... And I think some of this comes down to like how we view learning in the brain in a lot of ways. And we're always kind of like every generation like tries to think about how humans act and they relate it to something that's relatable to them. And right now it's like a computer, but the human brain is like nothing like a computer. And I think learning styles in some ways, like you just have like a better visual type of way of doing things, make some sense when you're thinking about like we have different processors and stuff, but the way the brain works um, is that you have different areas that focus on different things, but there's never a point where they're not all working in conjunction with one another. So it's not like, you know, like I always equate it like this. It's not, it's not like, it, it's like football. Like when you give, when, when you give the running back the ball, it's not like all other players just stop playing, right? Everything's well, on, on moving. Some teams. On some for Jets fans, yes, I understand <laughs> that. But there's a, um, but that's not how it, how it generally works. And I, I kind of want to go into what learning styles are just a little bit and, and some of the reasoning here as to why it's, it's actually probably bad to propagate the learning style myth. And then kind of, you can kind of start to talk a little bit about, you know, what is really good teaching and, and how we, we diversify a classroom. And so 
learning styles is like thinking that that people have like specific like strengths in different ways. And, and it learning styles shows up like in different ways at different time periods, but probably the most notable one, like the uh, Howard Gardner one is that you're like a visual learner, or you're kinesthetic tactile, or you're an audio learner. And the idea here is that teachers should like plan uh, lessons accordingly to these specific styles. Like I have a visual learner here, so I have to give it to them in a visual way. Um, the thing is that people have been doing studies on this basically since it's come up and there's really no evidence to support it. And there's a couple reasons for this. One, when they test people in their preferred learning style, um, they do roughly the same in their preferred learning style as they do in another type of learning style. And I, I'm going to come back and put a pin on that because that doesn't mean you should teach kids all the exact same way. That's not the way, that's not what that means. Um, and I'll, I'll try to phrase that back in, in a second. Um, learning styles are in a lot of cases are like done by self-reporting and most studies when we look at self-reporting is people don't do a really great job of self-reporting. Um, so people who say they're a certain type of learner generally actually do better in a different way. Um, and the other part about it is like, I was, I call it like the Harry Potter house test thing. So like the more you take a learning style test, the more chances are you'll just get like different things. Right. So it's like Harry Potter house test, like the first time you're Hufflepuff, then you're Slytherin, <laughs> then you're this. Right. It just depends. And the more complicated you make the test, the more likelihood that you bounce. And I think in a lot of ways that makes it seem like, you know, you're not going to the, there's just not a lot to support that there is this static type of way of learning. The reason why it's bad to have these types of styles is that it pigeonholes learners. It makes it seem that like a, one kid can only do like one type of thing and they, they're good at one thing. And the reverse side of that is if they're really good, at, if they're good at one thing, they're bad at other things, right? Mm -hmm. So, and this is where this is, this isn't true, right? We don't want to pigeonhole learners. We don't want to say if you're a visual learner, there's no chance you'll learn a foreign language well because you're not an auditory learner. And there's no evidence to suggest that and it's just bad. So like kids really need like a balanced repertoire of things. And the reason for that is the way the brain makes connections and how we learn is that it, there's a whole bunch of different neuron connections you know, basically electrical patterns that are made to be able to retrieve things and make connections with it. So, you know, repetition helps. Building interest really helps, right? That's what, like the old adage of the kid being like, why am I here? Well, if they can answer that, chances are they'll probably remember a lot more of the stuff. Um, the ability to, to work with material in multiple ways. Do they discuss it? Do they, do they repeat it? Do they work individually on it? Do they sh are they shown it in different ways? That makes multiple different connections. So I think, you know, I think inherently learning styles feels like it's something that, that should make sense because all of us feel more comfortable with different things. But I think if you turn that around, I think it, you can understand that a lot of the way we do learning should be multifaceted and should also be um, kind of connected to the context. Like if I said to you, I'm going to teach you something, right? How would you like me to teach it to you? Probably your first question back would be like, well, what are you going to teach me? Because I'm going to tell you right now, like if it's like, I'm going to teach you how to dance the cha-cha or whatever, you, you know, like, but I'm going to do it audioly <laughs> because you're an audio learner. You'd be like, that's not going to work. Right. So what we do is like, there are certain things that fit in certain ways and the more and the different ways that we do, it builds more neurological connections. All right. Well, so a lot to digest there. Uh, clearly you are well-versed in what's going on here. So I'm going to pass the conversation to you ladies, you know, as experts in really what, what is most commonly referred to as differentiated instruction, right? And the reason I, you know, kind of open it up that way is because that language has become so 
um, ubiquitous of education. It's somewhat hard to put your finger on, right, and describe specifically. But I think with what you guys, you ladies, bring to our school district and to the students in your school every single day is exactly what Chris just described, which is this never-ending desire to reformulate the approaches so that they meet the needs of students, recognizing that they all have different strengths, different interests, different areas that require support. So talk a little bit about what that looks like on a daily basis, because you know, Chris and I can talk theory and research all day, mm. and it interests very few people other than us. Um, Fair so, point. <laughs> so let's hear like what that actually looks like in practice. Sure. So I currently teach in an OCR classroom at Lincoln Roosevelt that stands for Out of Class Resource. So I have students who learn at a variety of levels in a variety of different ways. Um, I actually remember when I first started teaching getting the IEPs that would say, you know, this student is a kinesthetic learner and this student is an auditory learner. And while that was wonderful information, that is just not how you can run a classroom. There's no way that you can have a group of like just kinesthetic students over here and then I'm only going to sing songs for the auditory learners over here. It's just not functional. The reality... It, it also sounds not really appropriate. Correct. I'm also... I don't have a great singing voice. It wasn't really working for anyone. <laughs> so in reality, it's going to be different for different students and depending on the content as well. So this year specifically, I'm doing only math. And even within math, I am presenting maybe fractions differently than I am presenting algebra, than I am presenting um, geometry and different styles for different students. I prefer when I'm teaching to really, you know, give kids access to models, to visuals, to standard algorithm, a variety of different modes because different brains are going to pick up different things. And even if I think that maybe I'm an auditory learner, that doesn't mean that maybe I don't even have the best reflection of myself. It's also hard to ask students to go, well, how do you learn best? That's a really big question that maybe most adults don't even really have a full understanding of. Mm -hmm. So expecting a 10-year-old to go, you know what? I am an auditory learner. Thank you. I think is unrealistic. So giving them different modes and styles of instruction kind of helps them build their understanding of content. Well, even when planning educational programs through an IEP or through a 504 plan, I mean, you have to take into account that no 10-year-old truly knows if they're an auditory learner or a visual learner, and nor should they, because everybody learns in a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. And we used to write in IEPs, you know, that the learning style inventory was completed, and like you said before, that I, this is a kinesthetic learner. Well, mm -hmm. that that doesn't actually work. Now when we write it, we write multi-sensory instruction so that we can make sure that we're hitting all of those different modalities because every lesson is different, every kid is different, and the way you present everything has to be different. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good point to kind of to kind of build on, which is not only are our kids different, they're different today than they are tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, I mean, like, if you look at a picture of yourself from, like, your fifth birthday, like, technically that's you, but, like, if you went back in time, like, you couldn't really have a conversation with that, with that, like, <laughs> that'd be a completely different person, right? Mm -hmm. um, so... What we have to understand is that people are constantly changing. And this goes into like when we would have conversations about whether there should be tracking of students at an early age or whether there should be specific types of learning types of uh, instruction or things of that nature. What we have to understand is that kids mature. They change their interests. They get better at certain things. They practice them, right? Nobody is stagnant. And kids aren't, aren't a done product when they're 18. We're not done products now. Um, so, I mean, I think it's just the idea of like trying to create an environment that allows students to come to information in a lot of different ways and, you know, build those connections with that information. As, as you're saying that, you know, I've, you know, 
prepared myself to have this conversation while, you know, we've talked previously about the importance of appreciating the neurodiversity of our school community, of others, and recognizing what that means for how we interact with them. You know, one of the things that I say repeatedly, and I will say every opportunity I get, is this is one of the many things that makes being an educator so incredibly challenging um, as education, the demands on them continue to grow. For a long time, teachers... Uh, using the example about kinesthetic learners, right? Like if they didn't have something special that was active and physical for the kinesthetic learners, they were made to feel inadequate or unprofessional or incomplete in terms of the development of their learning experience. And that's just not fair to educators and it's not accurate for the student picture. Um, Interestingly enough, one of the things I read, you know, it states that in a 2015 study, um, it was was found that all areas of the brain are used when reading, right? And so I, I liked that example because we think reading, visual learner, right? In, in an attempt to continue to kind of debunk this singular mentality, right? For, you would associate those two things. But that research found that reading requires all regions of the brain to fire at the same time um, because it includes not just the visual processing aspect of reading, but it also includes attention, abstract reasoning, working memory, predicting, right? A variety of different aspects of the brain at the same time. And I just think of myself, um, I feel like a f- fairly well-educated adult. When I read complex texts, I know that I also recite them, right? I kind of whisper them to myself, you know, suggesting that I'm activating other areas of my brain simultaneously. And so, you know, our effort here to, to kind of break apart that singular mindset hopefully will be successful and also relieve teachers of that feeling that if they, A, aren't aware of the singular mindset that students are strongest at, they are inadequate, which is not fair and not true, um, but also to try and break apart the idea that students are, you know, if we ask a student, right, Caitlin, you just said, if we ask a student, how do you learn best? Like, I don't know. Lots of different ways. Like, I'm a kid. How do you want me to answer that? Is it, we don't want that to become a self-fulfilling prophecy where students are inherently taught to believe they can only be successful in certain ways with certain individuals under certain circumstances. Certainly not true, right? Um, They have skills and strengths that are interacting with one another to make them the complete person that they are. And it's our responsibility as an educational community to really recognize that everyone is so unique and, and requires you know, something individual that if we bend and flex our strategies, that we're going to cross those boundaries and help provide an experience that everyone can meet with success or growth in. And so let's talk a little bit more about that, because when you look across a classroom of students, regardless of how many are there, you inevitably see like the nodding heads, which can don't necessarily mean I got it. Sometimes they mean keep going so I can get out of here. Um, if we want to be fair about it. Um, but we sometimes see bewildered looks. We see requests to leave the learning space, right? I got to go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. You know, I got to walk I just, the halls. I just need to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so like, how do, you resp- how do we respond to that? Because in this conversation, breaking apart that, that mindset, that is a signal we get as educators that we need to try and do something different, which further supports the idea that, ne- that neurodiverse approach and appreciation. Mm-hmm. So for me, all learning strategies aside, I think the best thing to always do when I get a new group of students is spend the time working to kind of get to know those students, Um, incorporating interests and kind of adjusting your learning to what is going on in that grade level, that 
generation. I know since my time starting here at Lincoln Roosevelt, the students are different than they were when I first got here. So kind of taking that into account, getting to know the students so you know the different things that can pull them into the lesson and using that to build upon. Using the kids in the learning, their interests in the, lear the learning, having um, a variety of different topics, even within, so I teach math, but certain students within that math are really great at fractions, and then we move to geometry, and all of a sudden they're not great at geometry. So having the flexibility to understand your students and then kind of adapt it to their needs each day, for me, is what typically works the best. And I think both you and Dr. Ziegler kind of hit it on the head before when you talked about student interests, mm -hmm. right? Um, a lesson has to be interesting to students. The topic doesn't necessarily have to be interesting to students. We have to teach them things they're not necessarily interested in. But if we can do it in a way that piques their interest, and, and that can vary from day to day. One day a student might want to listen to something. Another day a student might want to see something or do something. So you really have to take that into account, too, that you have to be flexible and things might change day to day. So I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up, too. It's just the idea of flexibility in there and, and flexible grouping, too, because different kids are going to be successful in different areas, even within the same units, mm -hmm. even, you know, during throughout the course of the year. So, I, you know, in a lot of ways, we try to use this language that's static, which is a problem, which, which is like this kid is really smart and this kid is not as smart and this kid is really struggling. And their kids don't stay that way. They actually jump up and down depending on what their background knowledge is in something, you know, what their aptitude is in different things. That's correct. But and in, in their interests, which means those kind of flexible groupings in those heterogeneous classes are, are really important. That doesn't mean that if you put a kid who's really struggling, a kid who's doing all right, and a kid who's really ahead together in a group, magic happens. Mm. No. What you have to do is you have to make sure that you have something where they're grouped in a way where that will work. But, you know, people who have studied over and over again, if you put in that that piece where the interest is peaked and you, you are creative with groupings, those groupings benefit accelerated learners, they benefit struggling learners, um, because they all have these kind of fluctuations in what they know and what they can provide. And I think as, as we focus on the word flexibility there, one of the things we need to appreciate is the human condition, right? Um, we as educators can be have the willingness to be flexible at, at a moment's notice, right? But it fails to acknowledge and recognize that we ourselves are humans. We have good days, we have bad days, we have things that are happening. And so do the anywhere number of students that are counting on us also have lots of things impacting their mindset, their readiness to learn, their energy levels, right? Like just because a youngster struggling to sit still today doesn't make them a kinesthetic learner. Like, all right, let's learn fractions while doing jumping jacks today, yes. right? Like I use that because it's just ridiculous, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but what we've also learned is in that spirit of flexibility, we've redesigned some of our learning spaces, right? Maybe some students are just more comfortable standing, mm -hmm. right? And I emphasize that word because it doesn't mean they can learn better than standing. They're learning better because they're more accessible and ready to learn because they're more comfortable in the space. Um, I, I just remember being a student sitting in these terrible attached desks um, and it was too big, right? Like if I sat back on the back of the seat, I couldn't reach the writing space. And so I had to sit forward and doing that for eight hours on end was tiresome, right? And so I'm, I tell that story because what we've done in lots of classrooms, and I know you've done this in your classroom, Caitlin, is, and Chris, you've worked to really enhance this district-wide, 
is the idea that if we make the learning space and the learning environment one that is flexible and adaptable by students Mm -hmm. with the permission and support of the teacher, we find students are ready to learn and capable of doing amazing things. Mm -hmm. And so embracing that idea of flexibility, um, growing in an appreciation that every student really needs something different at a moment's notice, and that's okay. But as educators, we're willing to do that. You know, I think as an entirety of a learning community, if we allow that to help us celebrate how amazing our teachers are and our staff is, it'll help all of us grow in our appreciation for how, you know, how fantastic the learning experience is in classrooms. And it'll also help us support our children with their appreciation, understanding that coming to school is not this, you know, local and national policy issue, (laughs) right? You must go to school. That school is really this exciting space where they can grow in so many ways, socially, emotionally, academically, right? Um, And we're going to learn a couple of things Mm -hmm. along the way. And you're going to be good at some things. You're going to struggle at other things. And both of those present value in the overall experience. And so um, I feel like, you know, we've explained that in, in, in a really kind of deep way that is exciting to me because it's not about throwing, it's really about throwing out a singular mindset. And adapting and adopting one that is multifaceted and flexible. All right. So open it up to last thoughts. I mean, we've said a lot. You know, it's mm-hmm. this is a heavy conversation. Um, and it's one that's challenging to have. Um, but I'll continue to emphasize it's one of the many, many things that makes being an educator in the 21st century a really, really challenging profession. And I commend everyone because I, you know, I'm so thankful for the the effort that people are putting in our district to provide this space for students. So let's just wrap this thing up so um, you know everyone kind of can c- draw a conclusion here on how we meet the needs of students. Um, I just wanted to add, based off of what you said, really, I liked and appreciated the piece talking about students are humans too. I think we kind of move through the world with this, I am teacher, what I say happens. And forgetting the point that maybe I had a rough morning with my kids and I'm coming to school and I'm not at my best. The students are seeing those things too. So having the classroom with the flexibility, whether it's seating or really just creating the environment where students feel comfortable to say, hey, listen, it's not my best day. I had a student yesterday, one of my um, highest achieving students say, you know what, I just need a break. And I was floored. I was thrilled that he was able to advocate and say, you know, this is just too much for me right now. So I think regardless of style of learning or present of information, it really comes down to creating that environment of understanding, flexibility, getting to know your students, putting forth the feeling that it is a safe place for students to be really creates the best opportunity for learning. And along those lines, I mean, I think in creating that safe space, it's fostering that communication. Mm -hmm. I think as teachers, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about what am I going to do for my students? Mm -hmm. How am I going to teach this to my students, but what they're not taking into account and what we're not always thinking of is what am I going to do with my students? Mm-hmm. How am I going to get my students to partner with me in presenting this information to right, them? Right, to have some agency. Mm-hmm. No, I just really appreciate Ms. Redwood and Ms. Falkers coming in and sharing their expertise um, in this discussion. No, I thank you all. Um, once again, big shout out to our team here in the district, um, educators in all capacities here, co- consistently collaborating to ensure that our students have the very best experiences and opportunities and that includes um, the entirety of our learning community, it includes our students, includes our parents. And you know, through open communication, through a flexible mindset, 
um, and that incur- an encouraging word, a reassuring smile, you know, um, it certainly helps students recognize that they're, they are appreciated and we recognize that they are unique and that we're willing to go the extra mile to give them the, the composite experience they need. And that looks like lots of different things simultaneously. There isn't one singular approach that works best at any given moment for any person. That flexibility is really at the spirit of what makes education so impactful. So thank you all for joining me and thanks for listening.